Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Digital Gathering. Uh, today, most of our tech team is actually on the men's retreat. So we're going old school and uh, coming to you this way. I want to invite you to uh, meet me in Ephesians chapter 6. By the way, my name is Steve, and I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery. Ephesians chapter 6, as we are getting very near to the end of our time in the book of Ephesians, this conversation that we've been calling exiles. We're going to read the first nine verses, and then I will pray, and then we'll get into our conversation. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, that promise being so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we're grateful for uh, the church, for this community that you have provided for us, for ways in which we can gather both in person and here online that are a good gift to us. God, this is a, a, uh, there's a, there's a big challenge in this text. There are, there's language in this text that doesn't sit well with us. There's a lot to unpack here. Would you help us to come at this with an open heart, uh, in a fresh way? And would you speak to us today through your word? We pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, back in the early 2000s. For those of us who can remember all the way back to the early 2000s, there was an artist named Shepard Fairey. He started printing stickers and shirts with an image of Andre the Giant on them, and then the word OBEY, all caps, big old word OBEY. This was called the OBEY Giant Campaign. These stickers launched his career, gave him all kinds of other opportunities. Of course, probably most famously, he designed uh, the uh, iconic 2008 Obama campaign poster. But he got to start with this obey thing, right? And, and, and it's interesting to hear him talk about, uh, about this phenomenon because for him, there wasn't really a particular agenda. In fact, he, he likes to say that it was a campaign that did not have any kind of agenda. And yet, one thing that he has said repeatedly in different interviews is that he just wanted people to recognize that we all obey something. And the point of the campaign was to get people to start thinking about, okay, what is it that I obey? Who do I obey? I think he's definitely onto something in this. We all obey something or someone. Maybe, maybe it's ourselves, right? We have this internal code that we are following. Maybe it's some external thing, a person, a family member, their voice is running 
through our heads. Maybe there's a, a philosophy or an ideology. We all obey someone or something. And yet, this is a very similar to our conversation from last week. We don't like the word obey, just like we don't like the word submission. Obedience, submission, this sounds like giving up power, relinquishing agency, allowing someone else to be in control of us. It just rankles us, right? This idea of being obedient. And yet, like it or not, as Shepherd Ferry says, we all obey something. Now, this brings us to this, this text today, which talks about obedience, right? Children obeying parents, slaves obeying masters. This is a difficult, very misunderstood section in the letter of Ephesians, which overall is very uh, kind of positive, warm, fuzzy, big vision, lots of great stuff going on. And then these weird household codes that can kind of mess with us a little bit. So just as we did last Sunday, want us to begin by remembering what we call our hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics, of course, is how we interpret scripture. These are our lenses for discernment, remembering that everybody interprets, everybody discerns, even the most quote-unquote literal churches, theologians, pastors, everybody is interpreting through a particular lens. We try to be as upfront about this as possible uh, here at Discovery. Our lens is this. We understand scripture to be this large story, 66 different books, this library of books that tells one big cohesive story. We call this the narrative approach to scripture. And if this is a new idea or a new term for you, I would encourage you to go back to our January series, what we talk about when we talk about the Bible. We really got into the details of the narrative approach to scripture there. But just to remind us and get us all back on the same page, Scripture tells a story that, that can be summarized in, in kind of four movements. Movement one, creation, right? God creates the world, calls it good. Everything is in its right and proper place, the way that he designed things to, to function and to flourish. But then human beings who are created in his image rebel against this good created order. This is called the fall. So we have creation, fall, human rebellion. There's a fallout from the fall, right? The introduction of sin and death into the story. Now, the good news is that God doesn't give up. God doesn't walk away. He enacts this plan of redemption. So creation, fall, redemption. Redemption culminates in the, the coming of the person of Jesus, the second member of this mysterious uh, community called the Trinity, right? We believe God is three in one. Jesus comes, lives with us, and then dies in our place and overcomes sin and death through his resurrection. Now, the fourth part of the story, or the fourth movement, restoration, we are still waiting for that part of the story to unfold. But this is what scripture tells us Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So, good interpretation, good hermeneutics always begin with the question where are we in the story? Always considers what is the context, if we're in a smaller passage, what is the context of this specific passage? Who's the author? Who was the audience? When was this written? What language was it written in? What's the genre of the writing? What was the culture like at the time? All these sorts of questions. And then finally, good interpretation asks, what is the good news of this passage? If the big story is moving towards full restoration, how does this little story point us in that direction? 
So let's just work through that very quickly for this passage that we are in today, Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. Where are we in the story? We're in the New Testament. We're after Jesus' death and resurrection, but we're not yet to full restoration, just like we are today, that kind of messy in-between point. What is the context? This is a letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul's one of the early church leaders. He actually had helped start this church in Ephesus. He'd spent three years with these people. They were dear friends of his. He loved them very much, wanted to see them succeed. They are living in Ephesus, this pluralistic city, right at the heart, the intersection of the Roman Empire. Lots of economics, different religious views all coming together in this place. So part of the reason we call this this conversation exiles is they weren't um, removed from their land, but they were living in this place with all these different perspectives that, that worked against what it looks like to follow Jesus. So Paul wants them to be able to sort this out. Who are you and how do you live in light of that identity? The first half of the letter, all about the who are you part, right? This is who you are. And this is how much God loves you. And then the second part of the letter, which we are in here in chapter six, is how do you live in light of this love of God? Or as Paul says in chapter five, as dearly loved children, Walk in the way of love. Now this leaves us with the really big question then. So what is the good news of, uh, of children obeying parents, slaves obeying masters? How do we discover good news within that? Well, let's spend some time talking about that. All right. So first of all, <clears throat> um, remember the overarching principle here is found in chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The, the practical stuff that Paul begins in chapter 4, how to walk in the way of love, all leads up to 521. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do we live as exiles in this pluralistic world with all these different pressures? How do we live into this new humanity, this thing that God is doing in us, bringing Jew and Gentile and all these different people together? We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he transitions into, again, these household codes, instructions for marriage, instructions for parenting, and instructions for work. And this is where, again, he says some things here that sound very backwards to us, if we're being honest. But we'll find that they're actually quite revolutionary. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. This is where we were last Sunday. This is a radical idea, still is a radical idea in our day today. And it makes a lot of sense that Paul would look at marriage as a prime example of this. But then, you know, it raises the question, okay, so that, that makes sense in marriage, but how does mutual submission work? How does it apply to parenting, to the workplace? These are very different relationships with very different dynamics. So let me just clear up something right away, especially when it comes to the parenting piece. Parents and children, especially young children, not in the same kind of mutually submissive relationship, right? Uh, uh, and then at work, our, our relationship with our bosses, our, our, the people that maybe report to us, very different from marriage. These are not one flesh, two becoming one kinds of relationships. There is more distance. There is less intimacy. There are different boundaries in parenting and in work. And by the way, just kind of quick side note, notice, you know, the big word today, of course, is obey. Paul never says to wives, obey your husbands. Just want to make sure we don't skip on past that as we get into this topic today. 
So that being said, how then does this, this larger principle apply? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How does this apply to parenting and work? Well, let's look at parenting first. First thing we need to remember here is that Paul is speaking to a church. Our tendency as 21st century Americans always is to read this through an individual lens. How does this apply to me? How do I put this into practice? But Paul is saying these things to a community. He's saying things that need to be worked out together in church, which is why in each of these different relationships, he speaks to both sides, wives and husbands, kids and parents, slaves and masters. Parents don't submit to kids, but this is also not a one-sided relationship. Now, in general, assuming relative health within the family, obeying your parents, of course, is a wise thing to do. And especially for young children, it's kind of essential to staying alive. I mean, Paul says this, right? In verse 3, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. Obeying your parents can lead to a long life. There's both a literal and a metaphorical sense in which he is using that. So it, it, it pays to follow your parents' leadership. But parents also have this calling and responsibility, right? To bring their kids up in the way of the Lord, to not exasperate your children. This, again, a revolutionary teaching at the time. The first century was not kid-centric. There was no baby Einstein or Cocoa Melon. There were no camps. Children were simply property that you needed, that you wanted in order to survive. And yes, in some circumstances, there was you know, a desire to continue the family name or a legacy of some sort, and kids kind of served as a retirement plan. But for the most part, they were just property that, that they were extra hands to help keep the household running. So this idea of investing in your kids teaching and training your kids, empathizing with your kids, right? Not exasperating them, but empathizing with them. This was unheard of. This was unheard of in that time. Second thing we need to notice about this section, as children grow up, there should be, there should be a natural reversal of the roles. Children certainly need to obey when they are little. But, but again, in an idealized process, they would then sort of mature into a phase of mutuality. And then at some point, if everyone lives long enough, right, the roles switch and children eventually become caretakers. I want to be very clear here. This is the ideal, right? This assumes good relationships and assumes health and all those sorts of things. And I recognize that for many of us, we may not have this opportunity as parents or as kids uh, for a variety of different reasons. But again, this is the idealized trajectory of family relationships. Little kids obey, era of mutuality, and then eventually the kids become the caretakers. Now, the last thing, and I think this is really, this really gets to the essence of what Paul is speaking to here uh, in this section. We need to remember our definition of submission. Remember last week we said that submission is not about just doing whatever people tell you to do, right? Or being a, a sort of doormat for people. It is to be an open and generous person. It is to enter into relationships asking the question, what can this teach me? How can this form me in the ways of love? How can this form me to be more like Christ? To be a giver, not a taker. 
I think there are a couple of extremes, at least two extremes that I see a lot of parents go to. And certainly I feel these pressures. I get pulled in these directions a lot myself as a parent. One extreme is to be overly permissive, right? Anything goes, let your kids do whatever they want. The, re the reality is though, kids do need boundaries and, and, and they grow and develop and have different boundaries at different ages. You know, hopefully you start with this kind of small circle and then that gets bigger and bigger as they grow and develop and are able to handle more things. There are these stages they go through though, where they, they are parental wisdom and guidance is required. So one, one uh, extreme is we go to overly permissive, just let kids do whatever they want. The other extreme is to be overly programmed. And this can look like a lot of different things, but the essence of it is that we begin to think of our kids almost as robots, right? And if we just put the right information in there, if we just program them the right way, they will be these submissive, uh, compliant automatons who just do whatever we want them to do. And of course, that is not the goal either. What I believe Paul is, is pointing us towards and what is quite frankly, deeply countercultural uh, in our modern kind of kid-centric thinking is this, your focus as a parent should actually be on you and not on your kids. Your focus should actually be on you and not on your kids. Here's what I mean by that. What it means to be submissive to the role of parents is not that you allow your kids to boss you around. It's that you are open to what parenting teaches you about yourselves. Quite frankly, this is a terrifying proposition. And I think it's why a lot of parents go to one of those two extremes. We don't want to deal with what parenting reveals about ourselves, right? We don't want to deal with our selfishness and our sin, but, but to ignore this process, to refuse the formative power of parenting. It is a recipe to exasperate your kids. The best gift, the best gift that you can give your kids is, the, is an example of a life transformed by Jesus. Let me say that again. The best gift that you can give your kids is the example of a life transformed by Jesus. And again, cards on the table, being completely honest, this has been the most difficult thing in my own life. Like, I mean, out of anything that I've done in my life, parenting has revealed me to be this incredibly imperfect human being who is deeply, deeply in need of the transforming power of the grace and love of God. And yet, it is that, that, that sort of exposure that if I, if I submit to it, can transform me more into the likeness of Jesus. So our big question here is, what does it look, for those of us who are parents, what does it mean for us? What does it look like for us to walk in the way of love? Now, on to slavery. <laughs> um, the language here is problematic. I just want to say that uh, as clearly as possible. And if you would like to talk more about maybe why the Bible doesn't denounce slavery more clearly or how people have gotten confused about this over the last 2,000 years, I would be happy to do that. Moving forward, though, I want us to think less of master-slave and more of just kind of the general workplace environment. Let me just point out a couple quick things here, though, because I think these are very important to say out loud. Paul, <clears throat> the fact that he is even addressing slaves, this is a huge deal. 
because it assumes, it, it assumes, it implies that slaves were part of the church. And, and this would not have been true in any other social circle in Ephesus or really anywhere else in the first century. For slaves and masters to be in the same church, in the same community, running in the same social circles, this was a radical reordering of the social order all by itself. Even if Paul doesn't say, hey, slavery is terrible, free your slaves, the fact that they are both there participating in the church revolutionary stuff. Second, for Paul to address masters, to, to challenge them to be in right relationship with their slaves, again, totally unheard of in that context. Now, transitioning away from that language, in the modern American workforce, we have very different norms, right? And in particular, we have this desire to see ourselves as equal, to have very flat kind of structures and hierarchies. This, of course, is where most of the humor from a show like The Office comes from. Michael Scott wants to be everybody's best friend, but also he's the boss. And there's all kinds of tension that comes from that. Workplace relationships have a unique set of challenges. And so your particular role, your job, who you lead or who uh, you are led by, all of that looks very different for each of us. But at the heart of it, the same question applies to all of us. And it's the question of how is work forming me? How is my work forming me? What am I learning from this job, from this boss, from these reports? Is my work forming me into the likeness of Jesus or is it deforming the likeness of Jesus in me? Work is the place that we spend most of our waking hours, which means that the majority of your formation in the way of Jesus is both happening at and being played out in your work context. Want to know what kind of disciple of Jesus you are? Take a hard look at who you are at work. Okay, Who you are at work will reveal a lot about what kind of disciple you are. How do you respond to difficult situations? How do you deal with a bad boss? How do you treat people who report to you? How do you handle those times when no one is looking over your shoulder? Within all of this, Paul challenges us to work wholeheartedly as if we are working for the Lord, as if we're working for God. And so again, the big question here is what does it look like for us? What does it look like for you in your workplace to work wholeheartedly as working for the Lord. Not saying stay in a terrible job or continue putting up with a bad boss, but what does it look like for you to work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord? Now, lots to chew on this morning, right? Lots to chew on this morning. The big question remains though, what is the good news of this story? I think the good news comes in that final verse, verse nine, we serve a good master. I mean, may not love that language, but, but, but put yourself there for a moment. We serve a good master. We do not obey. If we are obeying God as revealed to us through Jesus Christ, we do not obey a fickle tyrant or a flaky parent or an angry God. We obey a good father, a gentle master, a loving savior who humbled himself. This is Paul's words to a different church in a different letter a loving savior who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 8. 
This is good news because some of us, we have not had good parents. We have not had good work situations. We are still dealing with the ramifications of that. Certainly, this is a big part of my life and journey is unpacking some of those things, difficult past experiences in both areas. But the good news is that we have a master who shows no favoritism, who is trustworthy, right? And who gave up everything to redeem and restore us to right relationship. A loving savior who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. A lot to chew on today. I want you to sit though here at the end with that truth. That whatever your experiences have been in marriage, dating, singleness, parenting, not parenting, not being parented well, work, like all of these things, do you trust that we obey a good master who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge there's challenges in this passage today. There's language that, again, doesn't sit well with us. And yet in the midst of that, these really deep truths about how our most intimate, relationships, our most significant relationships, where we spend large chunks of time of our life have incredible power to form us into the likeness of Christ or to deform us from the likeness of Christ. God, may our marriages, our relationships, our parenting, uh, our work especially, may these be environments where we are being formed more deeply into the likeness of Christ. May we know and trust that we obey a good master, a loving father, a, a gentle and humble savior who became obedient to death so that we might live. Thank you for this good news. We pray all of this today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.